Hello, hello, and welcome to Dubliners by Dubliners. We're on episode 9, and we hope you've been following along with us. It's been quite a journey. Uh, today we're going to talk about counterparts. I'm your host, John Cofetter, and I'm joined here as always by my co-host, Lachlan Coyne. As always, if you're interested in reading the story before hearing our discussion of it, we have it linked in the description. And you can also follow us on social media, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, using the handle by Dubliners. And lastly, if you've been enjoying the podcast, be sure to rate us five stars on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you might be listening to this. Just a quick note for our listeners that this episode covers topics of domestic abuse, so if you're sensitive to such topics, you should be advised. Today, before we discuss the story itself, we're going to discuss a theme that many people associate with Ireland, which is alcohol. Lachlan, do you want to give us your perspective on Ireland uh, as a nation of alcoholics or just fond of a drink? (laughs) Certainly, John. I think alcohol in Ireland in the modern days is an interesting position. It's probably gone away from, I think we're seeing globally, a trend of people becoming more and more people becoming teetotal or less reliant on alcohol but certainly I think binge drinking is common across the country of Ireland and and, and certainly from my own perspective and I think ourselves we both uh, enjoyed a good drink uh, many a time and and, and, and many long experiences and and, and long nights spent uh, spent drinking. Yeah and why why do you think Ireland is is so drawn to alcohol compared to other say continent European countries? I think it's probably a cultural attitude towards alcohol I think um, you know the, the cliche is always on the continent that People tend to drink socially with meals. It's much more common to see younger people drinking wine with a dinner meal. Whereas I think Ireland has a very black and white attitude towards alcohol. We tend to either not drink at all or binge drink and drink massively to excess. Right. The idea of drinking to get drunk is something that that comes up in the story. That the the purpose of drinking is to get drunk um, rather than to... I don't know, have a nice social event or something. Yeah, no, and, uh, and I think as well, it's it's interesting. Ireland probably uniquely, uh, at least in my experience from living in, in Luxembourg, was drinking is an activity in and of itself, whereas I think a lot of other countries would view drinking as an accoutrement or an accessory to an existing event or prearranged activity. Yeah, I've, I've sometimes had a similar experience here in Germany. Yeah, I suppose one, one other thing I forgot to mention in the intro is, is we're recording this episode uh, live in the same location for the second time. So it's, it's good to have you here in Berlin as well. And maybe you'll get to experience a little bit of the German drinking culture while you're here. Hopefully, John. <laughs> <laughs> so Ireland and alcohol, like for many people, especially like when I tell people I'm from Ireland, they, you know, the first thing they almost ask me is, oh, you must like drinking or you must like beer. Or What's your favorite beer? That sort of thing. It seems like it's been part of Irish culture for a long, long time, right? Absolutely. I think historically you look back and Ireland is always being associated with alcohol, I think, from the relatively early days. Part of the, the reason for that, I think, as well, is the Irish have a strong culture of manufacturing alcohol. So spirits and um, whiskey would be, you know, a strong relationship. And I think we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later on. As well, you'd have putching, which would be uh, equivalent to moonshine in the US or effectively a, a home-brewed vodka-like substance that ranges in strength from kind of 40 up to, I think, 90%. Uh, dense spirit and of course you have the most famous alcoholic export of course Guinness which is I think known the world over so I mean a lot of what you've spoken to there in terms of the alcohol manufacturing alcohol industry in Ireland dates back to around the time of Joyce a lot of these companies in particular um, whiskey was was big around this time and one of the things I was kind of slightly surprised to learn was that for some Irish people like this binge drinking culture was actually viewed as a kind of a British import and some studies speculated that in areas of higher concentration of British cultures like say places where they had cricket pitches there would be more instances of drinking or higher alcohol 
alcohol sales and in other areas where say mass going attendance was higher there would be less alcohol sales so i wasn't sure how to feel about that because it's something that feels so inherent to the culture it feels interesting when somebody says oh you've you've imported that from somewhere else then again perhaps excessive drinking isn't necessarily a such a positive import no no absolutely not it's 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 terrifying to think that this cliche of of, of the irish drunkard is exactly that a, a cliche attributed to the irish without actually being innate to our to our personalities or innate to to who we are as a, as a culture and that that's now how we're, we're viewed the world over is, is certainly a problem. Mm. We've, we've been talking about the whiskey industry growing around the time of Joyce or, sh- or shortly before he was writing Dubliner. There was also pushback against this vision of the Irish as a nation of drunks. Ancillary to that, or, or, or because of that, is a strong relation between Ireland and the temperance movement. The Pioneer Total Abstinence Association of the Sacred Heart, a bit of a mouthful, but it's um, one of the first temperance movements that was set up in the world, and it was set up as an organization for Roman Catholic teetotalers, founded in 1898 in response to the alcoholism in Ireland, and I guess in, in, in some ways in response to what was seen as English culture. And you know, the legacy of that movement, temperance movements exist to this day. One of the things that it was instrumental in trying to encourage people was to say this pledge that Catholic children take during their confirmation when they confirm their vows to the Catholic Church. And uh, they're often encouraged to take a pledge not to drink alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that speaks really to the, the point I made earlier, that Irish attitude towards alcoholism or towards alcohol in general, it tends to be very black and white. You're either binge drinking, you know, massively to excess or completely abstinent and refusing outright to, to drink at all which you know neither position is really a balanced or 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 sane approach yeah well i don't know i i can imagine you can be a sane non-drinker but yeah i i take your point that uh, perhaps doing things in extremes can be can be a bit excessive so so we've talked about kind of alcohol in ireland in general and and touched a little bit around time of joyce there's a lot of references to the alcohol industry in ireland we have even in the first story we have old cotter working in the in the distillery in the whiskey distillery and we've the wine merchant in the boarding house and joyce himself and the Joyce family have some links to alcohol as well. Joyce's maternal grandfather was an agent for a wine and spirit importer and had actually discouraged Joyce's mother from marrying Joyce's father because of concerns about Joyce's father's attitude towards drinking and, and being a heavy drinker prior to even their, their marriage. Right, yeah. Joyce's father, John Joyce, was a, a notorious drinker. Um, he was also abusive towards his family um, when he would come home drunk. And he was also interested in the and the alcohol industry and particularly in the whiskey industry he lost a lot of money in an investment in a distillery john joyce was as well as being a famous drinker was famous for losing money he lost a lot of money in an investment in the whiskey industry according to family legend his business partner who, who was a, a mr elaine was embezzling money from the firm and that's why it had to close down in the end resulting in john joyce's lost money yeah interestingly that character's name then appears later on in this story interestingly that that's linking to specifically this story which significant aspect of it or a significant part of the, the theme is is alcoholism and, and the impact of alcoholism on the on the, the family life we've touched on this before in, in, in previous episodes but to, to just briefly talk about Joyce himself and, and his relationship with alcohol he didn't really drink much when he was younger but during the periods where he was travelling through kind of continental Europe he picked up a, a strong drinking habit and I think we, we referenced periods of his life where his brother Stanislaus would have to pick him up from the pub because he was a uh, too drunk to, to, to get himself home. Apparently he, he had a particular fondness for white wine and uh, called it electricity. Yeah, Joyce himself, I suppose, perhaps as a result of his father, he maybe was later to drink than, than some, but yeah, he, he made up for lost time, I suppose. And 
Yeah, and so as you pointed out, he picked up a, a bit of a drinking habit in continental Europe, and he also spent a lot of time drinking when he was back in Ireland in between his, his trips to the continent, uh, drinking with Oliver St. John Gogarty and, and other, other people like that. So I, I think that's it then in terms of a kind of an overall perspective of alcohol in Ireland, the Joyce family and alcohol, alcohol in particular. Is there anything else you want to talk about relating to that? No, no, I think I can uh, jump straight into the, the plot summary of uh, Counterparts. If, if Okay, uh, sounds good, sounds good. Counterparts tells the story of a man, Farrington, who is a very significant drinker. We first encounter him halfway through the working day, working as a legal clerk, producing duplicate contracts, hence the, the name of the, the story, Counterparts. After a, an altercation in the office, he heads out to go drinking with his friends for the evening, interacts with a variety of different people, gets progressively more boisterous and drunk over the evening and then things don't always work out perfectly for him finally end with Farrington arriving home and seeing the consequences I suppose of the alcoholism he's engaged in throughout the, the course of the day being put upon the, the rest of his family I don't know John do you have uh, any any thoughts on the, the title itself I think has um, the counterparts has a, a few different interesting aspects to it that appear throughout the story yeah the title counterparts is interesting as you said it it relates perhaps to the to the copying of documents that um, Farrington is involved in his day-to-day work but also counterparts involve setting different characters against each other Farrington and Mr. Elaine we'll, we'll discuss a little bit more about both of those characters later but always this question of if somebody is a counterpart to someone else are they the same sort of person are they a different person how do they differ as I said Farrington and Mr. Elaine we also have Farrington and Weathers later they're direct rivals in a, in a contest and you have Farrington and of course his son Tom at the end who as you said suffers the, the brunt of, of, of Farrington's alcoholism so I, I think when you get a, a title like this as explicit as counterparts Joyce is really encouraging us to look at these characters not just in isolation but in contrast to each other it's interesting i think mr elaine is described as having a a piercing north of ireland accent and you know i think a lot of the language joyce uses to describe the interactions between elaine and farrington are very pugnacious in nature certainly very aggressive very heavily charged language is 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 used throughout this uh throughout the, the initial part of the, the story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's this uh, subtext of violence, obviously from Farrington himself, but even with, with Mr. Elaine, you know, the, the story opens, with, we hear that the bell rang furiously. So Mr. Elaine is, is wanting Farrington to come to his office, but he's he, he's he's not calm about it. He's ringing the bell furiously. I, I think the, the two characters then are they're, they're contrasted physically um, and, m- and maybe this is a good time to read out a, a description of Farrington to give you a kind of a better idea of him as a character at least in his physical nature and um, Joyce describes Farrington as follows when he stood up he was tall and of great bulk he had a hanging face dark wine colored with fair eyebrows and mustache his eyes bulged forward slightly and the whites of them were dirty uh, and then later we have this this image of him as he goes up the stairs to Mr. Lane's office. He's he's puffing and he's 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 panting, just just climbing up the stairs. It's interesting. I mean, I think anyone who knows um, anybody who has a problematic relationship with alcohol probably recognizes a lot of the description of the physical description of Farrington that 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 kind of wine dark colored skin just kind of very red in the face generally and the eyes um being referenced as being dirty this is a description that comes up uh, numerous different times throughout the story I, I i suspect it's it's uh hinting that Farrington is actually jaundiced as a result of damage to his liver through the the, the excessive use of alcohol yeah I, I was puzzling over that one all right the, the dirty eyes or the, the whites of his eyes being dirty because as you say, it's, it's mentioned at several points in this story, um, particularly later when he's in the pub talking with his, his companions. I'll also then read out a short description of Mr. Lane. So Mr. Lane, as, as you've noted, 
Lachlan has this piercing Nord of Ireland accent. So Mr. Elaine is presumably a Protestant. You know that as well from his, his name. It's not a, a traditional Irish Catholic name. His, his accent being a North of Ireland accent would suggest that he comes from the part of Ireland where um, it was majority Protestant. And so his, his description is, is quite different from Farrington's. It's, he's a, a little man wearing gold-rimmed glasses on a clean-shaven face. And the head itself was so pink and hairless that it seemed like a large egg reposing on the papers. The head being like an egg, I think, is kind of more of a comic touch but this these gold glasses and 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 the clean shaven face it's 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 a big contrast with farrington who's this this big bulky guy with a mustache and his his bulging eyes and so these two characters they're immediately set into opposition right they're both and you know directly antagonistic towards one another professionally it would appear and you know i I think i think the interactions between them you can reading the text you can really feel the the tension and it's it's clear i think from the start that they are not fond of one another, which really, I suppose, keeps sets it sets in motion a lot of the rest of the narrative. It's interesting, I think, at this stage to note as well. We're 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 not actually told who Farrington is. He's perpetually described as the man, or simply described with he. And it's Elaine is the first character to name Farrington as Farrington. So uh, there's an interesting kind of point there that. The narrator, and I think we're slipping into this kind of free and direct discourse idea again, that Farrington doesn't perceive of himself while he's in this office environment, while he's with these people. He is kind of a shadow of a man or a counterpart. He's almost a, a doppelganger nearly of uh, of himself, these these kind of shadow people. Yeah, no, it's an interesting idea. And I, I, I think, it, as you say, he's, he's described here as the man. And it's only when he's addressed directly by Mr. Elaine that, that we hear his name, Farrington. Uh, and there's a few other points in the story, as you say, where you d- the narrator makes these almost awkward descriptions of, of Farrington to avoid describing him by name. So it's an interesting technique Joyce employs. And and to your second point of him being a, a shadow of himself in the work environment, firstly, we, we have to note, of course, his, his job is this of a man who, who copies documents. He's a, a scrivener, it's a professional term. And at this time, typewriters did exist, but he would have to copy things by hand because in the legal profession, typewritten documents were not considered to be to be of legal value, which is, is kind of a funny concept coming from today. But yeah, that, that work of copying documents, you know, it's, it's, it's laborious, it requires attention, but it's also, it's not in any way rewarding, right? It's, it's rote, it's just the same thing over and over again, day after day. You're not really engaging your higher faculties at all. So the nature of the work is probably something that brings out this shadow version of Farrington and also the, the office environment itself, right? So we've talked about Mr. Elaine being a Protestant and Farrington then as a, as a Catholic automatically has a sort of subordinate role in this organisation. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's a strong sense of the physicality of Farrington within the office space, I think. He's perpetually described in these kind of big, bulking, physically imposing individual. And you constantly get the sense that he's struggling to fit, physically fit into to the office. There's a scene as he's, as he's leaving um, the office, as we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute. He lifts up the bar of the desk and, and, and kind of just kind of squeezes through that. Talking, there's constantly a sense of perfume hanging around on the, the staircases and things like that. You, you, you just kind of constantly have the sense that he, this is a kind of small, clunky wooden office. And he's just this huge hulking mass who's uh, struggling to operate yeah, you're right there. This is an environment that doesn't really suit Farrington. Uh, I think as well the, the contrast, as we said, between Farrington, who is this this big imposing guy, and, and Elaine, who is who's a smaller man but is is in charge, um, is uh, is an interesting one. 
So that that contrast then comes out then when the uh, when the two men meet in this first their first encounter. So Farrington has been called to Mr. Lane's office, as we said, and when Farrington arrives, Mr. Lane wastes no time in uh, telling him off, uh, criticizing him, and uh, not having certain documents copied, and also for taking too much time on his lunch. And Farrington, as he's being told off, he, he's looking at Mr. Lane, and he he's he's kind of looking at his diminutive size and Farrington is like contemplating violence against him so Farrington is constantly sublimating his his, his physical energy and his physical violence and um, the other the other concern Farrington has in this in this meeting is that he he wants to get more money it's midway through the month and um, he wants money for drinking uh, he, he, he contemplates asking Mr. Lane but Mr. Lane uh, unceremoniously dismisses him before Farrington really has a chance to put his request to you're right there the the driver money is is a huge factor in in Farrington's motivations and Ultimately, even then, with the pursuit of money, that's ultimately more to achieve uh, alcohol, his, 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 his primary objective and, and, and point. I think at, at this stage, Farrington walk, walks out of the office and, 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 and heads down to the pub. There's an interesting little uh, interaction with the, the chief clerk who I think kind of raises an eyebrow as he's, um, as he's walking out and Farrington just re- kind of nods to the row of hats on the hat rack, suggesting that, you know, he's not gone for the day, he's just stepping out to the bathroom. That's uh, what, I, what I particularly like about that image is that, that, that that's an interesting example of a gnomon, I would say the absence of the hat would indicate the absence of the man the presence of the hat suggests the presence of the man I think if, if we can force Noman into uh, each of these stories the idea of Noman's into each of these stories that's um, that's that's a benefit to us there but uh, John do you want to talk us through what happens when he's I suppose after he's left the, the office and in, in the pub well I, th- I think you've missed the best part of that that story there which is so he, he indicates towards the hat stand or towards the toilet and and the chief clerk looks at the Farrington's hat is still on the, on the stand and so the chief clerk is reassured and once Farrington gets to the stairwell or gets outside the office doors he, he pulls a second cap out of his pocket so it's a, it's a bit of a Mission Impossible sort of a spy movie sort of manoeuvre from Farrington. No man could have two hats. Um, but yeah, so I really enjoyed that. But um, actually, on, on on that point as well, it's interesting that cap he pulls out of his pocket is a flat cap, which is much more closely associated with kind of rural Ireland and you know kind of poor Catholic. Whereas the the hats on the rack would be more formal uh, men's hats, essentially. Even within this, the difference or the the the, the counterpart hat of uh, the the flat cap versus the the the, the, the gentleman's hat. Yeah, so so Farrington makes his escape and he he makes his way to uh, O'Neill's shop pub close to the office. Uh, he sneaks his way in and uh, ensconces himself in the snug in the pub, and then from there he orders a, a GP, which is a glass of porter. He drinks his glass and he asks for a caraway seed from the bar in order to conceal that he's been drinking. Yeah, so I think um, what, what what's interesting about this scene is that I think you're really getting a sense that this is a well-worn path for Farrington. He's He's gone into the snug, which uh, for anyone who's not familiar, a snug is typically a small cut-off section of a bar. Generally it can, but doesn't always have its own separate entrance. And there's generally a little window into the main kind of bar area where you can order directly from the barman, which is exactly what Farrington does. This is a well-worn path for him. This is something he's done on a, on a regular basis. And, 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 and then as well, the the very fact that he's he's ordering and eating the, the, the caraway seed to to mask the, the smell in his breath indicates that he's conscious that he shouldn't be necessarily engaging in this kind of activity. He then, he, following this, then he, he returns to the office and we, we, we get the interaction, or the first interaction with uh, Miss Delacour, described as uh, having a Jewish appearance and, and, and strong associations of uh, wealth with her. 
as well, which is, again, interesting that she is yet another character in this environment that is not Catholic, which I think is, 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 is critical to Farrington's sense of isolation, I suppose, a little bit, or, or, or sense of frustration, work paralysis, if we can, uh, if we can bring that thematic idea in here as well. So, so Farrington um, walks in. He's supposed to have prepared a document for Miss Delacour, and so he's called again to Mr. Lane's office. Um, Farrington has not completed this document. He has uh, two letters um, that he's supposed to have copied are missing from the document. But he, he walks into the office anyway. He walks into Mr. Lane's office, and he, he leaves it on the table. And Mr. Lane, at this point, is, is so uh, so focused on Miss Delacour, basically flirting with her. He has his, his leg at a jaunty ankle, and he's looking. his attention is totally focused on her. We hear that her pungent perfume is suffusing the office and the stairwell even. Yeah, so it's, it's, this, it's this quite funny scene where you see this massive contrast in how Mr. Elaine is dealing with Miss Delacour compared to how he dealt earlier with Farrington. It's, it's night and day. He's suddenly all sweetness and roses, and he, 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 he's eyeing her up, and he's, uh, he's totally focused on her, and barely even acknowledges Farrington when he comes in. Yeah, Mr. Elaine's vanity or Mr. Elaine's interest in Delacour allows Farrington then to kind of pull off his second heist of the day, which is to get the document with, with two letters missing in under his nose. He walks off, but of course, the second heist is, is not to remain uncovered. No. No, absolutely not. Farrington returns to his desk, tries and fails again to kind of continue working, but very shortly after, uh, Mr. Elaine turns up and, and there's a you know rather explosive interaction between them with various other people of the office all kind of gathering around to see what's going on and, 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 and what's going to happen. Yeah, and so so as you said, he, he, he tries to start working again. So so just before he gets he gets called to the, the retort and, and to the incident with the big public dressing then and, and we'll get to that soon because that's really the core of the story it's the, it's the the main incident in the story but uh, i just like to point out that yeah when he's when he's trying to do his work he has this this longing first of all for alcohol but he also he feels not at home in this environment and he he's obsessing over the sentence he's written and the sheet he'll have to write again and there's this description that really highlights what we've been harping on a, a little bit about up until now which is farrington's physical nature and then how out of place it is in the office that he's a kind of a very active character and also a very violent character. I'll just read out that passage now. He felt strong enough to clear out the whole office single-handed. His body ached to do something, to rush out and revel in violence. All the indignities of his life enraged him. Could he ask the cashier privately for an advance? No, the cashier was no good, no damn good. He wouldn't give an advance. He knew where he would meet the boys, Leonard and O'Halverhan and Nosy Flynn. The barometer of his emotional nature was set for a spell of riot. So yeah, so really this potent feeling about him that the barometer of his emotional nature was set for a spell of riot. That's quite the sentence, but it's it's kind of showing that he's ready to explode in some way, but he's in this environment where he can't explode. And so I think this also plays into then this, this confrontation we're about to see. I suppose two, two, two interesting aspects. He's getting amped up. You can kind of feel the language and the sentences even. It's, it's interesting as you, as you look at the sentences, they, they're getting shorter and shorter as this segment is coming up. He's, he's losing control ultimately I think of, of himself and I think we're, we're seeing a little bit of that kind of free and direct discourse as well there this this ultimately leads then to to, to Mr. Lane discovering the, the the absence of the the two letters and I think he, he, he begins a, a tirade of abuse shouting shouting various kind of obscenities and, and, and giving out to um, to Farrington I'll now read out the passage here because this is this is quite entertaining you know nothing of course you know nothing said Mr. Lane tell me he added glancing first for approval for to the lady beside him do you take me for a fool do you think me an utter fool the man glanced from the lady's face to the little egg-shaped head and back again, and almost before he was aware of it, his tongue had found a felicitous moment. I don't think, sir, he said, that that's a fair question to put to me. 
Yeah, it's this it's this great moment. We've kind of seen Farrington suffer all his indignities of the office boat, that it doesn't suit his nature, but also that he's been put down upon by Mr. Elaine repeatedly, that he he's unable to work there and that that really the way Mr. Elaine has been has been treating him up to this point is fairly reprehensible. All our sympathies, I think, at this point in the story are with Farrington and so even though we hear Farrington's inner monologue of violence through the narrator at this point and we maybe recoil a little from that that and even though we maybe recoil from Farrington's drinking habit I think our sympathies are totally with him so when we hear this moment of finally someone in in uh, in Dubliners has kind of stuck it to the man <laughs> stuck it to the to the system that's that's keeping them in place we, we we almost have this moment of cheer you know Mr. Elaine on, on his part he, all he can do in response is to refer to Farrington as a, an impertinent ruffian the language of it is is so um, too refined the language to to do to be a proper response and it just shows that you know he's been totally outmanned or he's been in this one instance he's been um, outclassed outclassed by Farrington yes that's it so it, it's interesting the, the, the story effectively uh, doesn't quite stop here but it would certainly kind of transitions you, you, you stop having this kind of very detailed day to day interaction with, with, with Farrington and, and, and you kind of drift off into slightly later in the evening he, the issues we've seen up till now access to getting access to money um, that's still a problem we get a little bit more context on the relationship between Mr. Lane and Farrington and Mr. Lane's control over the office. There's a reference to Mr. Lane chasing out one of the other Scriveners in order to make room for his nephew. Interestingly, in a little side note, that character is referenced again in Ulysses when Bloom is Leopold Bloom is looking at the notices of deaths, and the character who was chased out of uh, Crosby and Elaine's office is uh, is referenced, and, and, and Leopold Bloom says, "Is that the fellow from uh, Crosby and Elaine's?" Again, just a, a small connection that that, that uh, Joyce makes between Dubliners and Ulysses. Money is is on Farrington's mind, and we also hear that you know he has to apologize. He'll get to have his moment of glory shortly in in, in the pub, but uh, at least in the office environment, he knows that he's kind of made things worse for himself. Farrington knows that uh, he risks being uh, dismissed from the office, just like Little Peak was. We've had this moment, um, and and Joyce is uh, you know he he skips over the apology and the groveling that must have necessarily followed that uh, in order to kind of allow Farrington have this moment of glory. I think. Yeah, at this point, as you said, money is key in his mind, and I guess money is 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 the is the, the basis of all this oppression. But we now learned that Farrington is is planning to uh, to pawn his watch, so he's going to pawn his watch in order to get money to go drinking. Um, yeah, he does that. It's interesting. In the pawn shop, he's referred to as the consignor, which is a very strange um, phrase. It feels very out of place in the rest of the narrative, I think, is, 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 is relatively straightforward. And, and this intentionally going out of your way to, to refuse to refer to him as Farrington is interesting. This is the last time or the second to last time I think we'll see Farrington not referred to as Farrington as once we effectively cut from the pawn shop to Davy Burns pub from that point on then referred to as Farrington until uh, the last segment of the story which we'll, we'll, we'll discuss later it's in, in Davy Burns he meets up with his friends and starts regaling them with the story of how this happened coupled with the significant money he's got from pawning his watch so he's able to, to, to keep drinking 
Right, yeah, and, and so much of the narrative uh, at this point, uh, so much of the literal sentences on the page involve who stood who around, so who bought around for who, who was there, who arrives, who paid for drinks, and then who paid for drinks in turn. It's interesting that this is so core to the culture, I suppose, first of all, but secondly, it, this becomes such a such a big part of the story at this point, because it's, although there's no direct accounting, you know, no one, uh, and, and in fact, it, it, it's just still in place to this day that when a round system gets going that people will buy a round of drinks and the next person will buy a round of drinks and it's never you know explicitly stated i've bought this round so you're gonna to have to buy the next round or if people arrive late you know maybe they joined around the so there's never a, a very explicit x equals y sort of accounting to the thing but nonetheless it's very explicitly remembered and people do remember if people are shirking on their rounds you know i think this is something joyce is quite skilled at the you know he he's has a significant number of these kind of pub scenes i suppose across different different stories and narratives and he's quite skilled at writing these characters these scenes where you have a variety of different kind of interactions and effectively everybody talking nearly at cross purposes not really talking to one another but so much as as, as talking at one another one, one other aspect that's kind of interesting to, to to pick up on or mention at this point is that in retelling the story in the pub he drops the word sir which is um from the story itself we can see that was that was included in the in the expression uh, i don't think sir he said that that's a fair question to put to me whereas in the the retelling i don't think that's that that's a fair question to put to me from this point onwards he's Barrington there um, you know variety of different people are kind of coming and going and joining the group but it's it's only when uh, this character weathers a quote knockabout artiste joins the group he's currently on a, a part of a, a play group on at the uh, Tivoli Theatre which is uh, no longer with us unfortunately but uh, when weathers joins the group he changes the dynamics significantly. I mean, I guess the the, the clearest sign of that is is that the drinks Weathers is ordering. Weathers orders a, a small Irish and Apollinaris, which is which is a whiskey mixed with uh, sparkling water from from continental Europe. Not something that the the Irish lads would have been used to drinking. This is Farrington's round, and he he's going to buy whatever was asked. Perhaps suggest to the other people that they would also like this drink, but they thankfully for Farrington they declined because this is much more expensive a drink than Farrington would be normally paying for this concern of money also comes in this period before they meet weathers several of the people who've been in davy burns peel off from the group they don't seem to have money so the line of the story is uh, o'halrahan had money but neither of the other two seem to have any again with the round system there's a kind of murkiness there that it's not quite clear do they have money or are they just want to not drink as much as the other people there the assumption is if you have money you will continue drinking if you're protesting that you don't have money or perhaps if you seem to not have money it actually means you don't want to drink the default fault i suppose is that one must continue drinking and one must continue this self-destructive binge drinking it's interesting that's the section as well where there's a reference to a man having to maintain more than one house that is the single most problematic expression in dubliners prior to ulysses obviously one of the most challenging uh, collections of stories to get published and this story in particular counterparts caused significant issues this is one of the very few stories that references real pubs and real business locations alan and crosby's is or lane and crosby's is not a real business but a lot of the davy burns is a real pub that's still there on uh, duke street in dublin 
Right, yeah, and they also go to Mulligans, which is, is still a, a real pub as well. Nice spot, actually. So it's it's it's, it's interesting then, we, we transition in, into Mulligans. They meet up with Weathers again and a few of the other people from the theatre troupe that he's associated with. It's here, Farrington catches the eye of a young woman with a, a London accent. John, I'm, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on this, this segment first before I give my own commentary on this. We, we briefly discussed previously. Right, so, so I mean... I, 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 I'm, I'm going to struggle not to preempt what you're going to say here, but my take on this when I read it was, so Farrington is, is eyeing this woman and, and she kind of looks back at him a few times and she's clad dramatically or exotically. I, I don't know exactly how you describe it, but it's in this kind of blue and yellow, which is kind of these highly contrasting colours. I think there's a reasonable amount of her skin showing as well. So he's looking at her and, and they're kind of flirting with her. It's never quite clear. So eventually she leaves. She says, oh, pardon, in a, in a London accent as she goes by. My take on this was always, at, at this point Farrington is, is annoyed because he's stood all these rounds for Weathers who hasn't really been paying back he's, I think Weathers has bought one small round for the others but he hasn't really fully contributed Farrington has this connection that he, he feels if he had more money he would have been more successful with this woman and for me it was a jump that Farrington makes there a little bit you know, these are two things that maybe he's feeling uh, unsatisfied in in both his desire for this woman and his lack of money he kind of connects them but I think you have a more explicit connection there yeah so again in, in, in looking at this and, and and looking at original versions or script for counterparts or the, the the original plan, this woman character would have been written more explicitly as a prostitute. And I think in that interpretation, it is a bit easier then to understand Farrington's frustration with a lack of money triggering his inability or, or his frustrations with developing this relationship with this woman. There's no guarantee that the interaction will be successful simply if he has money, unless, of course, if she is a prostitute, in which case that's 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 much more simple. But again, I think this was an aspect of moral judgment was, was significantly against Joyce in this one, and he was not able to successfully convince people. Yeah, I, I think for me it was as well. It was the the London accent there. So his Farrington's tormentors in this story throughout the story. We we've got obviously Mr. Lane at the start. We've Weathers, who's who's also an English name and who who becomes with her shortly more more of a nemesis. You know, he's already not contributed to the round system, but you know later he'll also embarrass Farrington in another way. Uh, and then thirdly, we've got this woman here who is again it's it's this London accent and it's Farrington being rejected by you know someone who's associated with Protestant culture or with English culture. In Ireland is again for me the the reason for his anger there. No, you're right. You're right there, John. So I think maybe we jump on to the the, the next section in his interaction, the the arm wrestling competition with Weathers. This is a really well written scene. I think it's it's worth you know picking up effectively after this woman has walked out. Farrington is loses track of the conversation, and, and when he kind of zones back in, they're measuring the size of Weathers' arms, and they're all very impressed with how strong and physically representative he is. And they they ask Farrington to present the national interest, prove. His, uh, prove his strength in a in, in a in a, in a, a game of arm wrestling, and it's over the course of this again. Farrington loses the match, demands to do best two out of three, and lose loses the second match again with quite a significant red face. Having lost the match, the barman makes a comment of Ah, that's the knack. It's at this point Farrington gets particularly aggressive. What the hell do you know about it? Said Farrington fiercely, turning on the man. What do you put in your gab for? Shh, shh, said O'Halloran, observing the violent expression of Farrington's face. Pony up, boys. This is, you know, an interesting idea that this is not unique to this situation. Farrington has done this before. His friends recognise the signs of him becoming more aggressive, getting into that kind of danger zone and becoming more kind of violent towards 
the barman and they kind of need to settle him down a little bit before they can continue with their evening. Right, yeah. And, and the other aspect of that uh, armrest, it, it doesn't seem to be so important to Weathers. It seems to be taking it quite lightheartedly. It's just a J bit of fun uh, versus Farrington. It, it's really intrinsic to him. And later on, he's, he complains that he's lost his reputation as a strongman. I guess if we see Farrington in the round, we see his, his work life, how little dignity, I guess, there is in that, that this aspect of him of, of being a, a strongman is really important to him. And so we, we see why his, his loss of this armrest might hit him so strongly and why he he maybe reacts so violently and i think the other aspect of that is if we kind of read these characters as you know if Arrington here is asked to represent ireland well in that case maybe weathers represents england and, and weathers is, is is you know victorious over ireland and kind of demeans Farrington without really even thinking about it so it's it's this this cruelty i mean weathers isn't deliberately cruel but he's cruel in, a, in an indirect way by beating Farrington and by humiliating him so maybe we can draw parallels there between the relationships with england and ireland yeah, no, it's 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 an interesting ideal, right? I th- what I liked about this scene is I feel this is the last moment where Farrington fails, and you know I think we've we've basically seen him being stripped away. If you if you think of his journey as a, a kind of a chart, it started out as this kind of cocky, browbeaten man, but he slips off to the pub and he's very clever. But and he has to apologize. He has to pawn his watch to get enough money to be able to continue drinking for the evening. He's then had to buy whiskeys and apollinarises. He's then had to wrestle with this weathers man. And, you know, over the course of this evening, while we assumed that he was on an upward trajectory, or it appeared to be he was on an upward trajectory, and one of the, I think you said, John, one of the few Dubliner characters who are winning, all of these things are stripped away from him. His physicality, his sexuality, his financial security... All of these aspects of his personal life are are stripped away from him. And it's it's interesting then as we move on from this point, the narrative switches back to describing him as a man. It stops describing him as Farrington again, which is uh, interesting. You know, he's effectively, outside of the pub context, he's back to being just a man. And I, I think specifically a sullen man he's described as here. Just after that, that Pony Up Boys that we hear, there's puts then to him waiting for his tram home and he's described as a very sullen-faced man stood at the corner of O'Connell Bridge. He's not no longer Farrington, he's now this sullen-faced man, which is, if anything, even a step down from the a man he was earlier in the story. Then we then we get to see him at home, and so this is part of the story where, you know, if you've sympathy for Farrington up to this point, well, it's probably going to evaporate. You're going to have a difficulty with him of a character at this point. So Farrington is married and he has children. This hasn't been a huge aspect of the story. It's kind of midway through, there's a kind of a joke where Weathers is saying that he'll get the Irish boys backstage to the Tivoli to meet some of the showgirls there or to meet some of the girls acting there there's kind of a joke that Farrington can't come because he's married so there's a reference there but it, it comes quite late into the story and then when Farrington does eventually come home this child comes to meet him and Farrington doesn't recognize at first which child it is I mean it's dark but surely he, he should recognize his children's voice Farrington is, is not a family man no no absolutely it's 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 really interesting this is the denouement or the reveal moment. I, I remember certainly the first time I read this story, I was shocked to realise that he was married and that he had five children. There, There's zero... The, I suppose the way he's carried himself throughout this entire story, pawning his watch, spending money. This is a man living on the edge. There's no stability. There's no um, ability to carry through or to carry on... Uh, Right, maintaining feel, a home life. He feels like one of the characters from Two Gallants who are who are still in that stage of life where they haven't settled down in any way. Exactly. To suddenly discover that he has a wife is is, is very interesting and 
I think it, the description of the wife is interesting. It ties back to this idea that we talked about the uh, the counterparts, where uh, his wife was a little sharp faced woman who bullied her husband when he was sober and was bullied by him when he was drunk. You, you, you've got that counterpart where they are two halves of one whole of violent, aggressive, dangerous people who are bullying one another, and and, and, and there's a real question as to how stable or, or successful their relation is or, or can be in the future. Right. Yeah. And so so as as we progress down at home, Farrington eventually realizes it's which child it is it's his son tom his wife is not there at the moment his wife has gone out to mass and so farrington is, is looking for supper tom is providing him with supper and so tom is being in all regards a, a obedient and attentive child but farrington then notices that the fire has gone out and kind of uses this as a pretense to to beat his son tom and tom's response to this he, he's pleading with farrington not to beat him and he says i'll say a hail mary for you he'll say a prayer on farrington's behalf if farrington doesn't beat him but if pleas are are unheeded yeah it's it's, it's interesting here i think this is a little bit of a stretch i'd argue there's a degree of simony going on here the indulgences or exchanging religious favors for tangible benefit effectively this is the message or this is the corruption that joyce sees within irish society and, and the role that religion has within irish society is that it has poisoned people to the point that children are trading hail marys for people are on their behalf in exchange for kind of not being beaten and this is you know a particularly gruesome scene i would say just in terms of the viscerality of it he grabs a stick and and he's chasing the boy around the kitchen table it's, it's just just very haunting and it's interesting because I think Joyce writes these stories with Numan moments these kind of big grand reveals you know and I know I know I mentioned the existence of the family and, and the wife is maybe to some extent the, 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 the reveal here but I think as well is is the reveal just the horrible nature of, of Farrington as a man or, or the risk that alcohol poses I don't know John do you have thoughts on what the Numan moment really is here what the reveal is right yeah I mean it's Tough to make alcohol fully the, the culprit in this story. It's not alcohol alone that to this situation. And as you mentioned, it, the closing scene is, is a brutal and a violent one, but it's also not totally unexpected. It's shocking when it comes, but we have had all these precursors or we have had so much foreshadowing of violence. We've had so much of the monologue, so much of the perspective we've had inside Farrington's head. It's been these kind of fantasies of violence, fantasies of violence against the lane or you know, threats of violence against the barman who, who comments on his arm wrestle. Eventually, Farrington enacts his violence on the, the helpless child in the, the one way he can enact violence on challenge. It's, uh, as you said, he's been stripped away of everything and, and he wants to insert, assert himself in some way. Yeah, no, this this is it. So it's, 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 a, it's a different kind of story. It's a challenging story, I think. It's really interesting. Like, I mean, I think, again, it's, it's, it's one of those ones that really richly rewards you for you know on a on your initial reading you're, you're not going to get uh i certainly found it to be a very kind of roller coaster ride nearly of, of emotional highs and lows and what your relationship with with, with farrington is and, and and how you feel about that and i think this is i see the note you've got here does joyce make us identify with with farrington and you know maybe john i'll put that question to you first yeah i think you kind of heard in my in my description particularly of the retort or the rejoinder he makes to his boss earlier you know it was this this you know brilliant moment in the narrative where you you finally feel that like someone one of the dubliners rebelled or got one over on on the on the, the people oppressing them so yeah i think i think most readers will be like oh I'm, I'm i'm not in any way like farrington but as you read through the narrative there's elements of his character and there's there's elements of him that you you can you can identify with and maybe maybe identify is too strong a word but sympathize with and and I, in no way do i want to justify his actions at the end of the story um no yeah. no no if i can if i can talk to that there john i think you're right like it, it, it is he's not a 
traditional hero character. We're not expected or hoping to idolize him in any way. But I think you can, to to point, kind of sympathize with him or recognize aspects of his personality in yourself. You you want him to succeed against Elaine in you know that kind of witty rejoinder. In the story as it's written at the moment, with the you know woman with the London accent, at, at, at the point at which you are at, without knowing that he's married, you kind of think, yeah, this would be great, God, you know, maybe things are turning around for him, and he's just had a rough day at work, had a couple of drinks, and maybe things are going to look up from he has buying everyone drinks, but then you kind of think, well, what about pawning his watch? Where is all his money going? And Ultimately, who are these, these 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 men that he's hanging out with in the pub, telling stories to each other? See, all seem to be not quite seedy characters, but characters of little substance themselves or little purpose. And yeah, it it does make you question kind of what role Farrington has in society. Does society need people like Farrington to? Yeah, that's a question. I think Farrington exists and, and, and that's enough. And so then the question is, does how does society accommodate Farrington? But maybe that's a more of a philosophical discussion. I, I, I think, yeah, a lot of a lot of what Farrington does even earlier, you know, drinking his money away or sneaking out to the pub, it, it doesn't make sense, right? When you see his life or his, his office life in particular in context, it feels like it's a method of, of, of coping with this life. And yeah, I, I think ultimately, you know, he's still a more sympathetic character than someone say Mr. Elaine, who is not directly violent but he's in his dealings with Farrington it, it's, it's this kind of like societally accepted way of I want to say violence or just disrespectful treating of someone or, or, or in some way diminishing someone else that's you know somehow okay yeah almost treating it like a I think in today's language calling it like a zero-sum game that in order it's not enough for me to succeed others must fail I, I, I definitely recognize that within within the, the this story especially there, there is a an aggressiveness and a, and a sharpness to all of the characters that Joyce presents us with even even Weathers he didn't necessarily set out to win this arm wrestling contest and he didn't really goad Farrington in this contest but he did come along join the pub and start ordering kind of like these Apollinarises are expensive drinks you know he had to have known that he took a load of drinks from Farrington without repaying the, the rank system and there's this kind of faux oh protesting against the hospitality of the Irish and all this kind of thing in, the, in, the, in this almost kind of like artificiality so to some extent I think all these characters are a little bit uh, unpleasant similarly I think he, he, even the wife and we, we, we talked about these counterpart characters, the, the, the wife. When he's sober, she bullies him, and it's it's when he's drunk, he, he turns on her. To a certain extent, paralysis is probably the big feature that all these characters, the big facet that all these characters are dealing with and attempting to escape from. It's not paralysis we saw in like Eveline, where it's almost like a physical kind of escape Dublin. This is more of a psychological trapped in a way of working, in a way of living your life. You can't escape from or, or, or break the patterns and cycles that you've you've, you've condemned yourself to. Yeah, it, it's interesting in that context that the rejoinder he makes to his boss escapes his lips unconsciously. You know, he says without really meaning to say. And so it's almost this, this inner self asserting itself against the paralysis of Dublin, against this life he's been forced to live. There's, there's one or two real world parallels or parallels in Joyce's life that, to this story. So we've already mentioned that in one way, Joyce was uh, revenging uh, a slight of his father's in, in terms of Mr. Elaine having the same name of, of, of John Joyce's former business partner. The character of Elaine also kind of matches up with, with, with how Mr. Elaine is described by Richard Allman uh, in his, his biography of Joyce. The second parallel, so according to Stanislaus Joyce, uh, who's 
James Joyce's brother, their uncle, William Murray, um, was known to beat his children. And on one occasion, one of the children, Bertie, was, was begging his uncle not to beat him and promised to say a Hail Mary. So again, potentially Joyce drew from that. And, uh, one of Stanislaus's contentions was always that Joyce was drawing from both his diary and, and, and his creative work. So, so perhaps there's some truth to it in this case. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that you know, that, that's certainly true. And again, I think, I think that links in with, with some of the other things. So I think that, 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 that's been the, the, the story of, of counterparts. I think where this sits in, in, in Dubliners as a whole is very similar to A Little Cloud and the character of, of, of kind of Little Chandler from that story. John, you, you, you mentioned kind of interactions with a foreigner from England specifically and that, that, that kind of British-Irish relationship, personal frustrations, that paralysis, that inability to the patterns and cycles of behaviour and then the explosions of anger directed towards family, the children, the innocent bystanders, as opposed to the actual causes of, of, of those frustrations. And I think, yeah, you, I see you've, you've listed the boarding house as well, Mr. Doran, probably interesting there and akin, and probably Farrington to an extent. What Mr. Doran is due to become at the end of uh, the boarding house narrative, and, and, and a little bit we see that in his presentation in, uh, in Ulysses as well. Yeah, it's often said that the stories in Dubliners, although they deal with different people's lives, it sometimes feels like the one person's life because all these characters are often suffering from similar malaises or similar problems. Yeah, so that's maybe some of Farrington's counterparts in, um, in Dubliners itself. I think there's another uh, interesting counterpart in, in terms of this, this job of, of Scrivener, the other famous Scrivener in, in literature is, is Bartleby the Scrivener from Herman Melville. It's a short story. Interestingly enough, he also bells against his boss or against the life he's given him, but he does it in a very passive way. He just says, I would prefer not to over and over again to every request he's given and eventually ceases to attend to his own uh, basic food and, and shelter needs and dies. But it's it's interesting that, again, Joyce and Melville have chosen this job of Scrivener as being this, this kind of mind-numbing thing that one needs to escape from or that at least characters try to escape from in, in different ways. An interesting contrast there. Absolutely. So I think that's probably it for counterparts usually end these with talking about our own thoughts on the story and our feelings john how do you feel about this one do you like this one is this uh yeah i do i, I think it's an extremely skillfully written story and i think the core of that is is how how joyce evokes our sympathy for farrington and yeah i i i really liked how you put it that everything is kind of stripped away from him yeah i think this one it, it's a it's a key story in the collection because i think it shows the whole system of paralysis in ireland in in one story you know you, you see different facets of it elsewhere but this is really where we see the system that's that's enforcing it and the attempts to break out of paralysis and then the failure of that and also the consequences of that for for other characters, uh, for the family in particular. So yeah, it really, really encapsulates so much of the collection in, in this short story. It's a really rich story. This is this is one of my favorites. And again, as, a, as, as we noted, this this one is, is written later, or, or one of the last ones kind of written in the collection. And because of that, I think Joyce has had the time to marinate on or ruminate on how exactly he wanted to present this and what exactly he wanted to touch on and you know as we noted this one was subject to significant revisions and threats and and, and issues and things like that so what what is in here is very much i think a very refined piece similar to to galant's i would you know this is one of my favorite stories you know probably not i, th- I think to, to galant still pip, pips it out a little bit but very similar to that and similar to your own expectator experience so that it's challenging because you recognize so many facets or aspects of it without wanting to endorse those or you know and, and and you struggle you 
you respect the craft significantly while trying to balance or, or manage the weight of the, the psychological impact of, of, of a lot of the actions or, or a lot of the uh, events that happen in this story. It's a, it's a good one. I think you, you probably can gather that from our uh, passion and our interest in, in, in talking about this one. And so, yeah, next month we'll, we'll have a, a slightly different story. I feel like the last couple of stories have had a similar tone. We've had these men sometimes getting involved in problems with alcohol and, and ending in, in situations that they, they don't particularly want to be in and, and, and unhappy families and so on. After this, we'll, we'll, we'll have a female protagonist again. And it's um, yeah, one of the poorer characters in the collection as well. So it's, it's definitely a change in tone. It's also a very interesting story in its own right. Um, and so we hope you'll join us for that. Uh, so yeah, so we've been uh, Dubliners by Dubliners, I've been John Feather. I've been Hoffman Coyne. Thanks very much for listening. Bye. Bye.